All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. This is our favorite way to start the week. At least my favorite way to start the week. Studying Kabbalah, speaking deeper ideas with you guys, and helping, hoping to inspire each other. Now, the topic that we started last week was following our theme, continuing our theme, of the idea of arrogance, ego, and, uh, and generally hubris. The idea of feeling good about oneself to the point, feeling a little, a little too smug about oneself to the point that it actually does some moral, spiritual self-harm. In other words, and this is the big premise of the chunk of Kabbalah that we're starting right now, it's not just the negative things that we do that can harm us spiritually, ethically, morally, but it's even the good things that we do that we then feel good about, which sounds kind of crazy. It's like, hold on, we did something good, we felt good about it, sounds great, win, 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 right? You did something good, you felt good about it, what could go wrong? And in truth, nothing about that is inherently bad. The problem is, if the feeling good about oneself leads to a place of inflated ego and leads to a place of carelessness, making mistakes, judging others as beneath you because you did this and they, they didn't do that, then it leads a person down a negative path. And the truth is, as we'll see maybe today, it becomes very difficult to adjust and correct because at the end of the day, a person could say, I have to adjust and correct. I did something good. In other words, it's hard to figure out the need to correct and pivot when, you're feel, when the whole issue is feeling a little too good about something good that you did. So what we're talking here again is about doing something objectively good, but feeling arrogant about it. That's what makes it so, I think the right word that I want to use here is pernicious. Pernicious? That's what makes it so dangerous because it's hard to look in the mirror and say, you know, I, I, I messed up. When you really do something wrong, then you can feel it and you can recognize it and you can own it. When you did something right but felt a little too proud about it, so then what are you correcting? I did something right, you tell yourself. I feel good that I did something right, you tell yourself. It's hard to get out of it. So what we're trying to do here is give ourselves a little uh, narrative, little uh, cognitive narrative therapy, uh, not therapy, but like help. How can we give ourselves another narrative to keep us in a place of humility because understanding the, power, the, the, the need for humility will drive us to want to stay humble even when we have what to be proud of. And I just want to clarify this also. It, it doesn't mean that we should feel bad about ourselves or tell ourselves that we're a bad person when we're a good person. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about being dishonest or beating oneself up. The issue here is simple. The issue is that it's arrogance. It's the ego that gets in the way of our growth. It gets in the way of our relationships with others. It gets in the way of our relationship with God. And we know this to be true. We know this. It's been a documented fact. Without, I'm hoping I'm not overstepping, but in all of our lives, I think that we've seen the dangers of ego, how when it becomes all about me, other people suffer. When it becomes all about me, my relationship with God suffers. When it becomes all about me, I suffer. Ultimately, I suffer. 
So I think we can all, if we're being honest, we can recognize the dangers of ego. And so... It makes someone feel invincible. It makes someone feel invincible, which is dangerous, right? right? A little bit dangerous. Now, we have to balance this, right? There's, there's, a, there's a very fine line because you also do need to be, you also need to feel at some, uh, you know, on some level fearless and invincible and know your qualities and know your mission and know God's trust and belief in you. We wake up every morning and say, Moda'ani, Hashem, thank you for returning my soul. And part of that meditation is, I know that you gave me life today for a reason. And the reason is not for me to just shrink and say, you know what, I can't, I'm too small, I'm too weak, I'm too, you know, ineffective. No, the point is to do something bold and something great today. Make the world a better place, each of us in our own way. So we do need to be bold. But there's a difference, as we explained probably a few weeks ago, between the arrogance of Adam and the humility of Moses. Right? The large Aleph, remember we had a tale of two Alephs, the large Aleph and the small Aleph. Adam, in, in the book of Chronicles, is written with a large Aleph, and Vayikra to Moses is with a small Aleph. What's the difference? The large Aleph is arrogance. The small Aleph is humility. Doesn't mean that Moses didn't, Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Doesn't mean that Moses didn't know his qualities. Doesn't mean that Moses was somehow, you know, unaware of who he was. He knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly what he accomplished. But he felt honestly, genuinely, that what he accomplished was not his own. That he was given the gifts, the abilities, and the opportunity, and the calling from God. All of that came from God that he tried to do his best with that, and he also felt that maybe if someone else had that ability and that opportunity, they might have done a better job. So he never allowed it to get to his head. But at the same time, he wasn't naive about his role. He wasn't naive about his abilities. If, imagine if a guy like Moses would have told himself, I need to be humble, therefore I need to, I need to deny my abilities, so I'm not going to step up. I'm not going to be a leader. I'm not going to stand up to Pharaoh. I'm not going to lead the people. That would be a waste. It would be a wasted opportunity. Moses, you're not humble. I don't want to say this about Moses. You would say to the person, bro, you're not humble. You're a fool. Like, what? You, this is not humility. Humility is not denying your role, denying your mission. And I know we spoke a few weeks ago about this, about Moses kind of rebuffing God's uh, offer and him kind of turning it down for a full week and how, you know, maybe that's a misguided sense. And it could be, and maybe that's part of the lesson by the burning bush. Maybe that's part of the lesson. The lesson is don't deny opportunity when it knocks on your door. Don't deny your destiny. Don't be so humble to the point that you miss out on your role in the world. Because that would be a shame. That's not humility. That's just a crying shame. That's just straight up a loss for everybody. It's a loss for the individual. It's a loss for the world. Who, who wins with that false humility? You know, it's, hey, Matt, good to see you. They say that when it comes to the wrong things, we're humble. I'm sorry. When it comes to the wrong things, we're arrogant. When it comes to the right things, we're humble. Right? When it comes to, hey Ed, good morning. When it comes to, we're talking about our favorite topic, ego and humility, <laughs> of course. Um, when it comes to the wrong things, suddenly we're humble, right? It's like, no, I'm sorry, when it, keep on messing this up. We basically switch. So 
We become arrogant about all sorts of mishagas and all sorts of crazy things, like all foolish things. Well, oh, I'm arrogant about this. When it comes to spiritual things, like doing a mitzvah, helping someone, we're like, oh, who, me? No, I can't do that. Right? It's like, oh, no, no, that's, that's for somebody else. Suddenly we can't. Suddenly we're so humble. It's misplaced humility. In the language of the mystics, we would say that this is the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, dressing up in pious garb. One of the Chabad Rebbe's said that he learned, maybe as a child, maybe not as a child, he learned that the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, can dress up even as a righteous-looking individual. Of course, the evil inclination doesn't look like a person, but it means the inner voice can couch itself, can cloak itself in... In a halo, and basically say, no, this is a good thing, what I'm suggesting that you do. You have to be careful, because sometimes it's not easy to determine which, which is a holy uh, intuition and which is an unholy intuition. At the end of the day, the litmus test is usually, is it holding me back from doing something positive, or is it enabling me to do something positive? If it's holding me back from doing something positive, it's usually not coming from a good place. So if, for somebody to say, I'm so humble that I'm not going to do the mitzvah, I'm not going to help the other, I'm not going to you know, lead others or inspire others because I'm so humble, that's not humility, that's false humility, and that is nothing other than a crying shame. So here's the thing. We need to have strength. We need to have, we need to have confidence. We need to lean into our mission. We need to lean into our purpose. All of that is an absolute must. At the same time, Becoming arrogant about our accomplishments doesn't do anyone any good, right? Because what does that do? I'm arrogant. So I, I have a job and I do it, right? So, so what am I feeling arrogant about? The fact that God gave me the ability to do it, that's God. The fact that God gave me the opportunity to do it, that's also God. The fact that I chose to do it, okay, that's something. That's something, because even though I have the ability and opportunity, I could still choose not to. I could still, like, uh, allow my abilities and my opportunities to, to uh, you know, to just fade away. So I did capitalize on it with free choice, true. But at the end of the day, that's why they were given to me. They meaning my gifts, my abilities, and my opportunity. The reason why I have all this stuff is to do exactly what I did. So when I do it, is it really something to be arrogant about? Maybe not. So that's the big idea. And we saw, we spoke about, we've been speaking about this the last few weeks. Last week we mentioned that last point that I just, that I just uh, cited. That even when we choose to do something positive, which is a choice, which should be commendable, at the end of the day, that's why we've been given the talents, the ability, the opportunity, and the choice is to make the right choice. I once heard about a teacher I'm not suggesting that this is a good teaching philosophy. I'm not judging the teaching philosophy. But here's, here's a philosophy that I heard about a teacher. The teacher wouldn't necessarily reward a student's listening in class or behaving or, you know, learning. It wouldn't be rewarded. Why? Because what else are you supposed to do? In other words, like, isn't that the expectation? Again, should we encourage children through whatever means? Perhaps this is a more of a pedagogical conversation you know, that, uh, that I'll let the experts weigh in on. I'm not an expert on this, by far. This must be a French teacher. A French teacher? Why? They're like very? Because our <laughs> work is, is, if it's what you're supposed to do. Don't expect any praise. You don't get any praise. Yeah, interesting. We talk about that in school too. 
Yeah. yeah. That's what we're here to do. Yeah, yeah. Sandrine mentioned, I'll just mention for the for those that, that might, might not be able to hear. Sandrine said that in, in the French culture, French culture, in school or in work, if you do what you're supposed to do, you're not don't expect any like praise above and beyond that. No thank yous. But it's but also but I'm sure it's hard because like I, I know that no? Or it's just it's just the expectation. I think there's too much praise on the Right. Uh, a little too much praise here. It's nice. You know, I see my uh, daughter, she works. She got a thank you note for, from one of the founders of the, the leader business for, you know, being a good team, uh, team player, employee of the mom. It's nice. I mean, it's... <laughs> it's <not the> <laughs> but your inner, your inner roots are like, what is this? <laughs> you did your job. <laughs> why, the, why the praise? Why the thanks? Interesting. It's very interesting. Culturally, I, I can imagine that there's a lot of cultural uh, nuances on this. A little too much. Maybe we need balance somewhere. Maybe not never a thank you. Maybe not all the time needing a thank you. Somewhere in the middle. I'll tell you, I think a lot of it is, is, is conditioning. And I can, I can say that I think, you know, in this society, although within this society there are many different pockets and different areas, there's no one thing called this society. But I do think that praise is expected and praise is almost, it's almost needed sometimes mm -hmm. to keep on doing it. It's like, like, it's like, what am I getting from this? Like, I'm giving all this stuff, what am I getting? I don't know. We've, we've created that expectation, haven't we? Right, I mean, right. That's, that's what Sandrine is saying. It's a cultural, right? It's a cultural thing, right? It's I a cultural mean, thing. I, I was faculty, college faculty, for many years, and and I am of the philosophy that of of I assume that what sounds like the French perspective that there are things we expect you to do. You should come to class. You should stay in class the entire time. You should you know pay attention. That doesn't deserve praise or credit mm -hmm. in any way. Right. Um, but that's not you know I mean. We've gotten to a point where if someone doesn't take out their phone to text during class, that's a good thing. Right. And I, I say, no, that's an expected thing. Right. And the, the question, though, is, like, if that's where we are, it's kind of hard to, you know, to, to fight that, if you will. I don't mean fight it literally, but I mean it's hard to, you know, it's, that's what students need. Yeah, Donna. We can also apply it in the business world. So, like, in the United States, it's always been employment at will and not much respect for employees, especially at the lower end. Mm -hmm. But that has changed with the pandemic because it's difficult to get employees. Mm -hmm. So now they're getting sign-on bonuses and things. So they're getting more respect. Right. So what Donna's saying, just, just for the benefit of everybody, what Donna's saying is that we see this employment as well, how things shift. And now we're rec recognizing that just due to, I mean, now, like, literally now, it's we have to, perhaps, if we want to, hire or retain workers, bonuses or whatever it is to keep, right. And the reality is that it's, a, as a culture develops or as things happen, I guess we either respond or don't respond and then, you know, the, 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 getting some respect, yeah. yeah. The counter argument is, it's a job, you know, you do your job and that's, and I, I'm not, I'm not weighing in on this, um, on a, on a pragmatic level, but on a spiritual level. This is the argument that he offers in the, uh, the section that we're up to right now. And I mentioned it at the end of last week's session, and this is where we're going to pick it up today, is the idea, and, and Adina Malka mentioned from Pirkei Avot, right? If you do what you're supposed to, 
Don't necessarily take credit for yourself because that's what you were created for. And I think that's probably what you were quoting. Right? If you do what you're supposed to, that's great. But that's a good, don't feel bad about that. But should, the, should it lead to like a very big head? No, because that's what you're created for. Now, this is not, this is never what somebody, I can't say never, but this is not, what we're learning is not what we should tell other people to try to knock them down and say, hey, look at you. Don't feel proud. Don't feel happy about yourself. Oh, wipe that smile off your face. You were supposed to do that. This is not about, you know, being, um, you know, a downer for anybody and trying to, like, you know, uh, uh, rain on anyone's parade. This is not about anyone else's parade. This is straight up for ourselves. If we recognize that we are getting a little bit too self-proud, to the, point, to the point that it's harming. You know, when, when do you know that anything is a problem? It's when it starts, you know, it starts causing harm. So when we notice that our self-pride is not just healthy self-confidence, but it's a little bit beyond that. It's, it's harming my relationships. Other people don't, maybe are not responding to me the way I th- would like. And I can look inward and say, well, hold on, maybe I'm not showing up in the way that others want to be around. Maybe I'm showing up in a bit of, a, of an arrogant way. When we notice that, these are good ideas that we can put in our own head to disrupt that prideful or arrogant thought. So the prideful or arrogant thought is, well, look what I've accomplished. I'm so amazing. This is all spiritual stuff, right? I'm, I'm studying Torah. I'm davening. I'm praying. I'm, I'm loving God. I'm, I'm, can, I'm hitting on all spiritual cylinders. Okay? That's great. That's great. But if you feel yourself getting a little bit too arrogant, so then tell yourself, that's what I was created for. What am I being so arrogant about? What am I so prideful about? I'm doing my job. I'm doing my job. Now, let's take a look at a very important piece of the Talmud that speaks to this idea. Very interesting. Important. Very interesting. Fascinating piece of Talmud. I'm going to pull it up on the screen as well. I have copies here. If you don't mind, please pass these down. This is just a small excerpt from the Talmud, Tractate Shabbat 88a. I'll just pass down this whole pile. Sure. Okay, let me pull this up on my computer. Um, do you see, you know, can someone hold? Oh, here, yeah, perfect, so I can reference it. Um, okay. Hopefully you still have the first page at the top. Okay, it's actually paragraph number six. You guys see that? There's a little, on the Hebrew side, there's a little number in the margin. If you look at the six, where it says, Amar uh, and in the English it's Hizkia said. Okay, so that's where we're up to. I'm going to pull this up on the online, um, on the Zoom as well. Okay, here we go. One second. Second, one second, let me do this. Make this full screen, much better. Hold on. Okay, here we Go, okay. 
All right. Chizkiah said. This is, by the way, this is uh, Shabbat 88a. This is the section of the Talmud where it discusses and details the incidents. Sounds, uh, sounds suspicious. What happened at Sinai, at Mount Sinai. It talks about, we spoke about this last week, when God held the mountain over their heads and said either accept the Torah or else. And I explained how that's really love. And you know, there's another understanding of that based on Kabbalah and Chassidus. That's actually the section right before this. That's the section right before the section that we're going to study. You even see it here on the, on the handout. It's that, the end of that top section on that page. Okay, but let's, uh, let's see what Hizkiah says. Hizkiah said, and the H with a dot underneath it makes it a ch. Just so you know, that's the, uh, that's the English way of, of doing the ch. Hizkiah said, what is the meaning of that which is written from Psalms, in Psalms? You caused sentence to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was silent. Now, this is a verse in Psalms that, honestly, you could read this a thousand times and not make any sense of it. It's like, what? And if you read Psalms, sometimes you encounter these verses where you're like, what is it even saying? But the verse is, you caused sentence to be heard from heaven, the earth feared and was silent. What does that mean? The Talmud asks the question, or Chizkiah asked the question of the Talmud. If it was afraid, why was it silent? And if it was silent, why was it afraid? It's kind of like wondering how silence and fear or fear and silence go hand in hand. So the answer is the following, and this is all Chizkiah's statement. Chizkiah says, rather, the meaning is, at first it was afraid, and in the end it was silent. What does that mean? First it was, first the earth feared, and then it was silent. The, in other words, the question really is like this. When someone's afraid, typically, typically, although there's no one way to be afraid, sometimes you make noise when you're afraid, right? Ah, right? Ever watch a horror movie? Kidding, I don't know. Right, there's, there's, they call it scream for a reason, right? There's like, yeah, it's, so when you're afraid, you might make noise. Now, there, yes, it's possible to be afraid and silent, but the Talmud is not happy with that. If you're afraid, why are you silent? If you're silent, then why are you afraid? Silence means kind of like a calm. Everything's good, it's quiet. Is it fear or is it quiet? So he says, no, first it was fear, and then it was silence. What does that mean? Well, Talmud continues, you cause sentence to be heard from heaven. That refers to the revelation at Sinai. The Hebrew is, mishamayim hishmaita din. Sentence, sentence doesn't mean like a sentence. Like, um, this is Bob. See Bob run, right? Was that ever a book? See Bob run, yeah. Something like that? Okay. Right. Was it Bob and Jane? Was that, was that the book? Sally, Dick, and Jane in my day. Sally, Dick, and Jane. All right. Who, who can remember? All right. It's something like that. But that's not what we mean by sentence here. Right? That's not what it means that you cause sentence to be heard from heaven. What's the sentence? What is this? Uh, Wheel of Fortune. What is this? Wordle. No. This is Wordle, by the way. I got into it. You did? I got into it. Yeah. I bit the... Uh, there's Joodle now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a, whole, it's a whole thing. Anyway, all right, we don't have time for that right now. We'll get back to that later. So here's the deal. Sentence means din. Din means judgment. You know, like when a, ju when a court passes a sentence, it's like your sentences with the gavel, boom. That's what we mean. You caused sentence to be heard from heaven, meaning you caused judgment to be heard from heaven. That refers to the revelation at Sinai. And why? 
not judgment necessarily, but like din, like the law. You cause the law. The law meaning the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt and shalt, 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 and thou shalt not. That's din. That's judgment. That's a sentence. God is saying, do this, don't do that. Let's continue. And why was the earth afraid? So now we know, so we're breaking down the verse. You cast sentence be heard from heaven. That means revelation at Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments. Then what happened? The first reaction, right? It's all about live reaction. First reaction is the earth feared. What does that mean, the earth feared? Why was the earth afraid? In accordance with the statement of Reish Lakish. You know Reish Lakish? Our favorite uh, highway robber turned Talmudic scholar. You know, I've told the story about Reish Lakish. Yeah, yeah, he's, he was the dude. So, in accordance with the statement of Reish Lakish, as Reish Lakish said, what is the meaning of that which is written, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day? It says, This is in the account of creation, Genesis 1.31. It says, And there was morn, evening and there was morning the sixth day. So the question is, why do I require the superfluous letter hey? The de definite article, which does not appear on any, other, on any of the other days. Every other day it says, in the Hebrew, this is a Hebrew question. It says, it should say. doesn't say shishi. It says yom ha-shishi. Yom ha-shishi. The sixth day. Every other day it says it was evening and morning, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day, day five. When it comes to day six, it says the day six. Or day the six. Yom, day, hashishi, the sixth. The sixth day. Why the sixth? The means, when do you use the word the? It's when you want to re reference a specific one, right? It's like the big game. You, know, you can't say in marketing the Super Bowl. You know this, right? You get sued by the NFL. You can't use the Super Bowl. Do you guys know this no. in marketing? Yeah, it's a whole thing. You have, to, you have to say, like, the big game. But when you say the big game, the big game, it's a wink and a nod. Everyone knows, euphemistically, you're referring to the Super Bowl, right? It's a thing. They've, they've, the Super Bowl is like a, a trademarked uh, thing. Back to the point here. When you say the, it means oftentimes a, def a definite or definitive article. It's like a specific thing that you're referring to, the sixth day. Not just sixth day, but the sixth day. Like you would say... The Mona Lisa. It's like not just any Mona Lisa. I don't know if there are others. But it's like the one that, we, that everyone knows. Like the means the one. So the question is, what does it mean over here? Hashishi, the sixth day. Right? Why is that? So here we go. It teaches, here's the big insight, the big reveal. That the Holy One, blessed to be He, established a condition with the act of creation. God created the world on a contingency. You know what that is? You know, in like legal deals, you make contingency, like if this, then that. If this happens, then you'll get paid, right? God says, God created the world with a condition, on contingency. And he said to them, them meaning heaven and earth, if Israel accepts the Torah on the sixth day of Sivan, Hashishi, the sixth day, not the sixth day of creation, but also the sixth day of Sivan, the month of Sivan, then you will exist. But if they do not accept it, I will return you to the primordial state of chaos and disorder. Therefore, you see, you see what's going on here? When God created heaven and earth, God said, you're here now, but it's, it's contingent. You got to wait two and a half thousand years. 
If the Jewish people accept the Torah at Sinai, then you're going to continue. If not, then you're going to be undone. So, therefore, let's just finish this up and we'll explain it. Therefore, the Talmud, or at least this commentary, concludes, the earth was afraid until the Torah was given to Israel, lest it be returned to a state of chaos. Once the Jewish people accepted the Torah, the earth was calm. So, what, what does the Talmud say? The Talmud quotes a verse. The verse says, a sentence, sorry, you, God, caused sentence to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was silent. And the Talmud says, all of this is talking about the moments that happened, the epic moments that happened at Mount Sinai. What happened? Simply, the simple story is, God gave us the Torah, He told us the Ten Commandments, and everyone went home. And uh, 40 days later, we made a golden calf. But there's greater drama, the Talmud says. Heaven and earth were, were shuckling. You know what shuckling is? They were, they were trembling in fear. Heaven and earth were. They were trembling in fear. Why? Because when God said, no, do you guys want the Torah? Depending on our answer would determine whether or not heaven and earth continued to exist. Because heaven and earth were only created on a, with a contingency. And what was the contingency? If the Jewish people accept the Torah then great. If not, then everything is done. Why? Why? Because the whole purpose of creation is to make this world a home for God. If we don't have the tools to make the world a home for God, then what's the purpose of the world existing? Are you with me on this? The whole purpose of the world existing is to be made into a dira lo to be made into a home for God. A, a home for God in this world. Like we said in yesterday's reading, Torah reading. Create for me a sanctuary and I'll dwell within it. Not just only a physical sanctuary in one space, but make the whole world into a sanctuary in a general sense. That's the reason why this whole world was created. You think God just created this just like for fun? Just, hey, you know what? No rules, no desire. I created this without an objective. Who makes something without a purpose in mind? We should at least grant God the... The, the respect to say that he probably had an intention when he made all this stuff. Otherwise, it's a little bit, a little bit not nice. Who makes something without having intention? Why presume that? It's not nice, right? God had nothing in mind. God's like, you know what? Let's see what happens. Boom. I mean, maybe, but that's not how Kabbalah chooses to see this. Judaism says that God had an intention. God had a very clear intention. What was the intention? That this world be made into a home for him. There, and how do you make the world into a home for Hashem? It's through... Okay. Somebody wants to build a home. And they, and they hire you to build it. What's the first thing you should ask them? Again, let me just set up the scenario clearly. Somebody... Okay, person A, Ruvain, wants a... Wants to, wants a their dream, Ruvain wants his dream home. And he hires a contractor named Shimon to build it. What is, what is Shimon's first question to Ruvain? Have you built this Well, Shimon's going to build it. Oh, you're saying, no, no, Shimon is the contractor. What's the contractor's question to the, to the, to the one who... The plans. Need the plans, okay. I mean, I think the first question is, so what do you want? Right? You say, you, you want, you're hiring me to build, you a, to build your dream home. Okay. What's your vision? What do you want? Tell me what you want, and I'll uh, see what I can do. Tell me what you want. God has, God wants a home. What does that look like? What does that look like? We're going to figure out what God wants? Like, God, let me surprise you. 
always a bad idea, right? <laughs> always a bad idea. Especially with a house, yeah? It's like, yeah, husband says to his wife, I'm going to surprise you, here's our new home. Gewalt. Let's make this a group decision, please, right? Let's, let's, uh, let's bring everyone in on the conversation, right? Certain things you don't want to surprise. Jewelry is already on the fence. Jewelry I'm going to put on the fence. It could go either way, right? Saying, right, like... Uh, right, exactly. Except, obviously, with Donna's jewelry. That's a given. That's a given that's, that it's good to go. No, but really, it's like everyone's got a different taste. So, so what? I'm going to presume to know your taste. Now, obviously, it's the thought that counts, and that's what we tell everybody. But yeah, at the end of the day, though, if you really want to get something that they want, it would make sense to ask them what they want. Well, here's the good news. God told us what he wants. Where? It's called the Torah. He's got a 613 things that he wants. He's like, do this, don't do that. There's 248 things that God says I want you to do, 365 things that God says I don't want you to do, and that constitutes what God wants. That's God's will, as, as articulated in the Torah. So what's going on? God created the world. He has a vision. God created the world for a purpose. What's the purpose? Generally speaking, he wants a home. He wants a place that is conducive to him on earth. Great. How do we make that? How do we make God's dream home? So we can come up with that on our own. We can say, oh, you know, I think God would really love a porch. I think God would really love, you know, like uh, an extra garage to park all the... It's like we can come up with ideas or we can say to God, hey, what do you actually want? You tell us and we'll do it. That's a, that's a healthier way. You tell us, we'll do it. So God did exactly that. Well, I don't know if we initiated the conversation. He initiated the conversation. Whatever. God says, here's what I want. Great. Imagine if we say, you know what? Nah, not going to build it. Not interested. What happens then? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right? What happens if we say, nah, not going to make this uh, a home for you? So God says, all right, in that case, then I don't need any of this. Right? The whole reason why this exists, the world meaning, the universe, the whole reason why heaven and earth exist is to facilitate this, this dream home of mine. If you don't want to do it, if it's not going to happen, then we're done. Experiment is over. Donna, you don't like this. Yeah, because it just seems very, you know, arbitrary and negative and not real love from God. I, th we're not so for this conversation. We're not talking. We're not talking about love as much as we're talking about more of a of a job. God says, right? Imagine if some. Imagine if going back to my example of building a home. You imagine you have a vision for a home, and you hire and and you hire either the architect or the builder. It doesn't make a difference. You hire someone to 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 facilitate your vision, and they come back to you and say, you know what? I don't like your vision. Sorry, they say to you, I don't like your vision. I'm not going to build this. What would you say to them? I'll get someone else. You're fired. You're out. You're out. But they're not That's not love. It's not love or not love. It's, it is what it is. It's like I, have, I want something done. You're not going to do it. I think we're done here. So, right? But no, it leads to, no, the decision leads to self-destruction. Which part? If the people don't accept the Torah. One second, one second. Forget the Torah. We're talking about, we're talking about the home now, right? Let's, let's stick, stick with, the, with, with the analogy. So what, what's going to happen? So you're going to say, look, if you don't want to build my home, I, I guess this business relationship is done, right? Like I'm, I'm, 
I, I, I put you into, we're having these conversations, I put you here to build this thing that I want. If you don't want to build it, okay, I'll have to find someone else or start over again or whatever. But if you're not going to build it, then I'm not going to keep on spinning my wheels. Like, what, what am I doing here? Hashem has a vision. And the vision can only be facilitated through Torah. Because there's no other way that we're going to get it right. There's no way that we're somehow going to conjure up on our own exactly the vision that God has. What are the odds? What are the odds that we're going to come up with exactly the vision that God wants? It's not possible. If we say, if all of humanity says, because the Jewish people were the last people that were offered this, the Jewish people said, as the last you know, remnant of humanity uh, in, in this conversation, says, you know what, God? Not interested. So what does God say? No one wants to build this? I guess we're done here, right? If no one wants to build this, if no one wants to see through my vision, if no one wants to facilitate my vision, then we're done. Hold on, hold on one second, one second, yeah. Sure, sure, go ahead. The notion of the mountain is pure love, so the people, how could they say no? Now it seems more a hammer, like with destruction as the, the opposite uh, decision. Here's what it really means. When, the, when heaven and earth, heaven and earth, we're now attributing in the Talmud a type of consciousness to heaven and earth. Imagine heaven and earth know that they only exist to be made into a home for God through the vehicle of Torah. Let's say they know this. And now they're standing at Sinai. And God says to the Jewish people, hey, do you want this? They are trembling. They are the ones, right, that's the verse. They are trembling. They're afraid. Please say yes, please say yes, please say yes. Right? And then when the Jewish people say yes, like, whew, then they can be silent. No more panic. Why? They're panicked insofar as what happens if the Jewish people say no, and if no one wants to receive God's, God's vision, then, then how is any of this going to happen? Then what, then what does that mean for us? There's a lot of fear, a lot of trepidation. The moment the Jewish people say, yes, we're in, all right, now we're good. However long it takes, we're not going to get it right. It's been a minute or two. It's going to take a while, but at least we're on, at least we have marching orders. We know where we're going. It's like when you play golf, you need to have a destination, usually marked with a little flag by the hole. Except if it's top golf, and then it's a whole other situation. You guys know top golf? It's fantastic. Great place. There's also a putting version of that now, Putt Really? Mm-hmm. Putt Shack? Same idea. Really you know, cool. The West Side. Similar. Really? Oh, wow. Legit? Mm-hmm. For kids also? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah. Maybe? Is it, or is it more? It's in the bar, but it's kind of separate. Okay. Got it. <laughs> bar, in other words, you have to be at least bar mitzvah? <laughs> I don't know. I'm here all week. Okay. Um, Michael, jump in. Yeah, first of all, I just want to mention, I don't know about other people in the Zoom. I'm having a lot of trouble hearing the people that are in the room with you. Um, so if you can kind of... I'll, I'll, try, I'll, I'll try to do better about repeating. Yeah, yeah. okay. No, that's fine. This is what, what troubles me about it. And I get what you're saying. I understand, you know, the idea of God's vision and, and building a home and, you know, telling us what God wants, etc. But to tie it back to, you know, the idea of arrogance. I mean, I think what troubles me about it isn't it the height of arrogance to say that the whole world relies on our decision or the you know, Jewish people, the Israelites' decision. 
And, and okay, I get, you know, it's a little bit, you know, um, I, I kind of, when you just said the thing about it was offered to everyone else, okay, so maybe it wasn't just us. Right. You know, maybe it was like, but we were still the last. Right. And it, there was no plan B. I, I hear you. I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't really have a good answer for that. It's, it is what it is. It says that God shopped around the Torah to all the nations. Everyone said, everyone asked God, what's in it? When God said, what's in it? They said, you know, it will pass. Rather not have that binding commitment. God then goes to the Jewish people. And I mean, the same Talmud that says this also says that. And Talmud says that the Jewish people said, yes, we'll take it. And at that no, point... No, 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 I'm yeah. sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but I'm okay with all that. That, that makes sense to me. You know, but, but the idea that the world would in return to primordial chaos if we had said no. That, right. That's, that, you know, that the entire world at that point relied on our decision. I think that, that's what it is. I, I, I mean, hear you. I don't know if I can, I don't know that I can uh, explain it any other way. I mean, that's what the Talmud says. And, you know, that's, uh, that, that's, that's the way this narrative is being couched. That, that, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. Can, can I just ask one other question, though? Sure. Is, is it that's what the Talmud says or that's what, you know, this one individual says. The Talmud I mean, says is, that is, usually you know, can, can if, I... if there's a dispute in the Talmud, the Talmud will, will, will share the dispute. There's a question when you get into the Agadita. This is not a halakhic conversation, not a legal conversation in the Talmud. When you get to the Agadita, the question is how literal do you take the narratives? Like, are heaven and earth really shaking? Are they really silent? Are these metaphors, like language that's being used to express a point? I, I would look at it as you know, not every word of the Agadita needs to be taken literally. Right, I got to meaning like the, the more of the narrative story part of, of the Talmud. It's more of, 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 a, of a, um, a perspective. And the perspective is how important it is to recognize that there is a master plan. How important it is to recognize that we all do play a role in the facilitation of such plan. And by the way, um, Jews have 613 commandments and everyone has seven. And everyone has a role to play in that. And yes, 613 is a bigger number than seven. And that's why we tell someone who, for example, wants to convert to Judaism, are you sure? Are you sure? Because you can fulfill your vision, your purpose, and, and, and do exactly what God wants from you with seven commandments. Now, these are seven overarching big commandments that, that include many specific uh, individual things. But we tell someone, are you sure you want the 613? And if they say yes, okay, great. So, I, I, but I don't know that there's a way around that. I don't think we're going to start, I don't think in this conversation we're going to say, you know what, Jews don't have 613 mitzvot and don't have a, 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 a unique role. It is what it is. I, I, I mean, we might be uncomfortable with that, but it's, it, it is what it is. Does it mean that, 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 to, that Jews are the only ones that have a role in creation? Of course not. But there's a specific role. And I think this is really a, you know, this is, at the, this is the Jewish Talmud. That the Jewish Talmud speaks about Jews is not surprising. That a Jewish Talmud speaks about the Jewish role is not surprising. That a Jewish Talmud should speak about primarily the role of all of humanity, that would be surprising. Right? It's a Jewish text, so it's going to speak about the Jewish role. None of that is surprising. What I take away from this is a few points. Number one, there's a vision. God created the world with a vision in mind. Number two, he then gave us the, the knowledge and the, the information to facilitate that vision. Number three, us accepting and embracing that is a very important piece of, of, this, of this whole thing. But really, the big takeaway from all of this, and this ties back to the beginning of the conversation, the big takeaway is that when we follow Torah and mitzvot and make this world a home for God, 
All we're doing, not all, but what we're doing is our job. That's the job. In other words, going back to what we were saying before, does it require a pat on the back? Probably not. I mean, we could do that also, but not too much, not to get ourselves too carried away. What's really going on? We're really facilitating why we're here. We're, we're just executing on our purpose. It's like, should the architect or the, um, the builder of the house, should they pat themselves on the back? I don't know. They were hired to make something, and they made it. Great. Good. Arrogance? I think arrogance is misplaced. That's really what we're saying. What we're saying here is that there's a purpose. There's a vision, and the vision is being facilitated. Okay. Right, when we say chosen people, it doesn't mean chosen. Chosen means chosen for a specific purpose. Chosen doesn't necessarily mean better. Chosen means chosen for a specific purpose. Responsibility. Responsibility, right. Right, right. Dina Maka is also pointing out that, that we don't seek reward. It's not like, you know, hook me up with all, the good, with all the reward for what I've done necessarily in this world. In this reality, we don't always see that. It's not always obvious, right, that we get um, reward. It's hard. We don't get that immediate feedback. And that kind of makes it difficult. Like if we always got that immediate feedback, it would, I think it would make all of this easier. Like if every time we did a mitzvah, the, the heavens opened up and the lights shone down and we saw a brick being laid in God's home, so to speak, whatever that would look like, it would be like, oh, great. It's that positive feedback that would want you to do more, right? But that would make it then too easy. That would take away from the freedom of choice. So that, and we've talked about this also in this, uh, in this book, in this series, how that's why sometimes it actually works the opposite. We do the right thing and it seems like we're getting negative repercussions. And then we do the wrong thing, and it seems like we're being rewarded for it. And that type of moral feedback confusion, which is a phrase I just created right now, that moral feedback confusion is what keeps free choice alive and well. Because we can tell ourselves, so one second, I can do that and succeed, or I can, I can do the wrong thing and succeed, or do the good thing and fail, Okay, maybe I'm going to do the wrong thing. And it makes it that much more difficult, which then makes the building a real thing. But the building had to come by choice. None of this should take away the fact that we made a choice. Heaven and earth are shaking in their boots because heaven and earth knows what's at stake. Heaven and earth, they know. Again, do they really know? Is this just a way of saying how important it is? I don't know. I'm just saying that heaven and earth on some level, whether they know it or not, are hanging in the balance. In other words, is this, is this happening? By the way, also to address this question, it's, Torah is also a light, and the Jewish people are also a light into the nations, right? Even though it doesn't mean that everyone's on the hook for the 613 mitzvot, but the, the moral teachings, the ethical teachings, are definitely that which is transferable across the board. And a lot of that has been, you know, transferred, if you will, outside of the, 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 the specific Jewish borders. We had a course, which we love to reference, Judaism's Gifts to the World, where we talked about multiple uh, like revolutions, global societal revolutions 
that were generated, the catalyst of which was Torah. And so the idea here is that Torah is absolutely designed to change the world for the better. And so the acceptance or lack thereof of Torah is a very important deal. What happened at Sinai on that sixth day? That's why it says, the sixth day. Because that sixth day was hinged. I, I don't think I created that. I don't think I, I, I finished the commentary on this. Why does it say Yom Hashishi, the sixth day? By the way, that Yom Hashishi is the beginning of Kiddush every Friday night. Yom Hashishi, Vayichul HaShemayim. That's Yom Hashishi. That's that saying. When you say Kiddush, Friday night, the first words, Yom Hashishi, the sixth day. That's the sixth day we're talking about. That's the same quote. Vayi'er, Vayiboker, Yom Hashishi. That Yom Hashishi is the end of that phrase, of that verse. And it was evening, it was, and it was morning, it was day. It was evening and morning, the sixth day. We say Yom Hashishi, and then we say Vayichul HaShemayim. And God concluded making the heaven and the earth, etc. Yom HaShishi, what we're saying is, the sixth day and the sixth day are inextricably connected. The sixth day of creation and the sixth day of Sivan, of the month of Sivan, 2,448 years later, are absolutely connected to each other. Because the sixth day of creation, when Adam and Eve are put on this earth, and the sixth day of Sivan, years later, the sixth day of Sivan, when, when the Jewish people accepted the Torah, that made it all come full circle. Because creation, including creation of humankind, is what, 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 what is the role of, of heaven and earth? What is the role of humanity if we don't have a guiding light to direct us through this, through this journey called life? Now, the, really the question that is based on this, the, really the question that emerges from this should be, why did God wait two and a half thousand years for this? Why did God wait until then? What happened those first, that, that first span of, of, of humanity? That's a good question. How could God expect us to, to function or to make this world a better place without that guidance? That's a valid question. It's a valid question. What was God thinking? He put people on earth and said, like, Talk amongst yourselves, figure it out. Like what's, what, what's, of course it ended up in a flood. Of course it ended up in chaos. I mean, even with Torah, it's chaos half the time. Like, can you imagine without any guidance, any divine guidance? This place would look, it would look crazy. So why didn't God give it to Adam and Eve? It's a good question. It's discussed. It's too, too, too big of a conversation to have right now. But in short, I will say half-jokingly, God tried with one mitzvah and they broke that one. So he's like, all right, we're going to wait a little bit. He gave them one commandment. Don't eat from the tree. You saw how long that lasted. Right? Minutes later, chomp. I hope God's not looking as I, as I chomp on this apple. And that's all. I, I say that a tongue-in-cheek. There's a reason why God waited to give the Torah. It had to be the right time. He had to lay the foundation of maybe of what, maybe for us also, what the world looks like without a Torah to know then the, the contrast between no Torah and Torah. There are various different, different angles on this, and it's too big of a conversation to have right now. But the point here is that Torah is a, is a game changer. Torah, which of course includes all of Torah, which includes Kabbalah, all of this is a game changer. And this was given at Sinai in the year 2448, the Jewish year 2448, the sixth day, of crea- sixth day of the month of Sivan, Yom Hashishi. On that sixth day of Sivan, 2448, is when the world finally got its vision. And again, even the seven Noahide laws also, the, the vision of that, of those seven Noahide laws also come from Torah. So it's not just the 613. It's everyone, everyone is, um, is empowered on this day. Okay, so with that in mind, we can get back inside our text.
Do you have a, I saw the hand go. Oh, no. I was confused about, um, the to uh, I mean, the pronouns here. Um, oh, and the Talmud, the Talmudic pronouns? Yeah, yeah, it is a little bit confusing. When it says they? You, they. Yeah, you, they. I, the, my understanding is we're talking about heaven and earth, so hence the they, right? Although it says, why was the earth afraid, which makes it sound like a, like a, a singular. Anyway, that's, that's what I'm... God established a condition with the act of creation and said to them, if Israel accepts the Torah on the sixth day, you will exist. If you do not accept it, I will return you to the primordial state of chaos and order. That means creation, heaven and earth. Else. Yeah, he's talking to heaven and earth. Yeah. He's saying, guys, heaven and earth, again, this is presuming that heaven and earth have a consciousness. He's saying to creation, all right, I'm creating you, but we'll see how things play out. By the way, this can't really take this literally anyway, because it's not like God didn't know the future, what's going to happen, as we said last week. It's not like God is a, is a being that's learning as he's going on. God knows what's going to happen. God knew that the Jews would accept the Torah at Sinai and how everything's going to play out. It just means, it's just trying to highlight the fact that, that the purpose of existence is that it operate, that you and I operate in a way that is consistent with that vision, with the purpose. In other words, the, there is a vision, and it's important that, that we're following the vision. And all of this is leaning back to the, to, to the core point that we started this, today's session with, which is, how to combat arrogance. If you think, if you and I think that the baseline is chaos, the baseline is chaos, and anything that we do above chaos is like a bonus, well then we pat ourselves on the back. Look, I could have devolved into chaos, but I didn't, I'm a mensch. Don't I get rewarded? That's one perspective. But if the baseline is, no, no, the baseline is not chaos. The baseline is order. The baseline is, 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 a, is a good, healthy society, a, a righteous society. So then when I do all of that stuff, I'm just meeting expectations. That's not something to become arrogant about. And that will take us into, into the conversation back inside. So what I'm, what I'm going to do is pull this up. I'm going to pull up this on our screen. Okay, this is where we ended off. We did a little bit of this last time, but we're going to pick it up and get a running start. Okay, we're on page 240. Which is, if you, have the, if you have the book, it's 240. If you have the handout, it's 240. And online, it's also 240, which is you know, obvious that everything is going to be on the same page. But we're in the middle of that page. Um, as you, if you have the little, the little booklets that I printed out, you'll notice that I messed up on the printing. And I mentioned this at the beginning of the class. It's back, when you turn the page, it's going to be backwards. So I apologize for that. Just follow the numbers, and you'll figure, try to you know, do your best to figure out how the pages turn. OK. Here. Sure. OK. Um, let's jump in. Therefore, our sages declare, this is from Pirkei Avot, if you studied much Torah, do not claim credit for yourself. Right, it says in Pirkei Avot, and, and understand this, Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, Ethics, the, the section of Mishnah called Ethics, that is not the law. It's beyond the letter of the law. This is not what you're legally required to do. None of this is about legal it's all about ethical. It's about a, a, a healthy way to live. Do you have the, yeah, it's 240, that first page. It's about a healthy way to live. And our sages tell us in chapter two of Avot, 
If you study a lot of Torah, do not claim credit for yourself. Don't let it get to your head. Don't become arrogant. The Mishnah does give a reason there. The reason is for you were created for this purpose. But this is an additional reason. If the first reason is challenged as insufficient. In other words, the first reason is, what's the first reason? The first reason is, Hashem, God gave you the mind. God gave you your energy. God gave you your, your, God gave you your studious nature. The first approach to combat arrogance is to recognize that everything that we have is a gift from Hashem, gift from God. If that doesn't work, then we say, all right, then, then at the very least, I'm just hitting expectations. Man has free choice. We spoke about this at length last week. Man has free choice. And although he has the strength to comprehend and discern and to serve God yet, he has the ability to choose not to study Torah or pray with devotion. In other words, the first reason might be insufficient. A person might say, yes, I know God gave me the ability, God gave me the talent, God gave me the nature, but I could still choose not to. I could still choose to use my studious nature to study all sorts of other things and to not study Torah. The fact that I, studied, I chose to study Torah is my choice, so therefore I'm going to pat myself on the back. Hence he's told, for you were created for this purpose. Man was first created precisely for this goal. That's a very strong statement. Man was first created, that, that phrase is, uh, gets lost in translation a little bit. I mean, it's here in English, but man was first created. That means that from the, from the, from the initial onset, the, the initial conception of creation is for this purpose, is for this goal. So if you've achieved it, great, but this is not something above and beyond expectations. It's not like, wow, I can't believe you did it. It's good. You did it. That's great. I feel like uh, we're channeling the French way of, uh, of looking at things. Like, you did it, that's great. It's obviously not a bad thing, but okay. Expectations. You, you, you achieved expectations. It is written, Bereshit, in the beginning, or as Rashi notes, for the two called Reshit beginnings, God created. God created Bereshit for the two beginnings. What does that mean? Our sages explain God created the world for the Torah, which is called Reshit, and for Israel, which is called Reshit. This is the first Rashi on the Torah, actually. First Rashi on the Torah says that part and parcel of the vision of the world is, as we mentioned from this other Talmud piece, is for Torah and mitzvot. And the 613, which the children of Israel facilitate. At least on a good day. 242. God intended for Israel to be elevated through Torah. His intellect and will, may he be blessed. And that's not just Israel to be elevated through Torah. It's not just a personal elevation, but it is a, an idea of also elevating the world and bringing the world to its place. And again, it doesn't end. It doesn't end with the Jewish people. It continues to flow to all who are inspired by the message of Torah. And, and the Jewish people are meant to be a light unto the nations, which means that it's meant to then inspire others as well. Not necessarily in all the 613, but in whatever one is enjoined to do. Let's continue. The Zohar declares, and this is what I referenced in the email that I sent out last night, three are bound to each other. And of course, let me just give the disclaimer. The Zohar is the primary work of Jewish mysticism. As such, primary work of Kabbalah is the Zohar. As such, the Zohar speaks of a Jewish role in all of this. So the, the Zohar says the following, three are bound to each other. This is not really a good translation. It says three, there are three knots that are bound to each other. Shal, shloish, 
the, uh, let me read the actual, the original in the, uh, in the Hebrew here. The original says, um, I forget which, which of my many texts that are open for me will be quickest to look at. It says, Tlas, sorry, Tlas Kishrin, Miskashra in Dabada. There are three knots that are knotted to each other, or three ties that are tied to each other. Here, the translation makes it like a little bit too simplistic. Three are bound to each other. There are three knots that are knotted to each other. Israel are bound to Torah and Torah to God. That's what it says. There are three parties. Israel, the people, Torah, and God. And all three are tied to each other. They're bound to each other. For Torah, listen to this, for Torah is the instrument by which the souls of Israel are bound to godliness. How do we facilitate how do we, human beings in general, Israel specifically, children of Israel specifically, how do we fulfill our mission and connect with Hashem, connect with God? It's through the implement, it's through the vision of Torah. It's like, again, it's the builder by looking, by understanding the vision of the person who wants to build the house. That's how you have a relationship. If I say, I hear your vision, I completely disagree, and I don't want to hear what you have to say. Then there's no. Then what, what's the relationship? So the relationship is predicated on understanding and, to the best of our ability, you know, following that vision. Our sages say, on the verse, each spoon was ten. It says regarding um, there were certain donations that were given uh, for, the, uh, for the Mishkan, for the tabernacle. And it says that, uh, that the spoon, the weight of the spoon was 10. Each spoon, the weight of silver of these spoons was 10. What does that mean? It says each spoon was 10. That means in, in, in the Zohar, again, Zohar, Kabbalah says that the 10 commandments parallel the 10 utterances by which the world was created. That you have these two, these two um, instances of 10. 10, 10. Each spoon was 10. 10 and 10. What does it mean each spoon was 10? 10 commandments... Uh, on a deeper level, mystical level. Ten commandments and ten utterances. In Genesis, the Torah tells us that God created the world through divine speech. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be a heaven. God said, let there be vegetation. God said, let there be sun, moon, and stars. God said, let there be uh, birds and, and fish and animals and humans. God said. Ten times it says God said. Those are the ten utterances, ten articulations of speech that... God used to create the world. Well, guess what else has the number 10? 10 commandments. Why are each of them 10? They're paralleled. The world is sustained. The 10 utterances of the world are sustained when we keep the 10 commandments. Are you with me? That's the, that's the implication. 10 and 10. 10 utterances, 10 commandments. The world is achieving its vision when we are keeping the 10 commandments. Our sages tell us, and this is what we did inside, before from the Talmud, Shabbat 88a, that God made a condition with creation. If Israel fulfills my Torah, good. If not, creation shall revert to chaos and void. We read that and discussed that. Our sages also say in Shemot Rabbah, in the verse, Ela, these are the accounts of heaven and the earth as they were created. Ela, these meaning heaven and earth, by whose merit were they created, and in whose merit are they maintained. In the merit of Ela, these are the names of the children of Israel, and Ela, these meaning... Uh, people of Israel, by whose merit do they exist? In the merit of Elah, these are the testimonies and statutes and judgments, which means that the earth exists when we follow the guidance of Torah. 
And again, yes, these are Jewish texts and they speak about the Jewish people, but it would be very surprising if Jewish texts didn't speak about the Jewish people. If there's any text that should speak about the role of Jews, it would be a Jewish text. So I'm not surprised by that, that the Shemot Rabbah, the Jewish Medrash, and the Jewish mysticism speak about a unique Jewish role. None of that is surprising. This also applies to everyone. Every human being is created in the image of God, and every human being has a purpose, and every human being's purpose is aligned with the vision of the world. And what we say here applies to everyone. But what's the, the point here is not about, the, really, none of this is about the unique role of the Jew as much as it is about expectations. What are the expectations? The expectations are that we make this world a better place, a more godly place. Therefore, let's continue. Therefore, last paragraph on this page. They declared, our sages declared, in Avot, as we mentioned before, for you were created for this purpose. You studied a lot of Torah. Don't take credit for yourself. Because you were created for this purpose. The primary purpose of man's creation is for the Torah. That is why we're here. We're here for Torah whether that's Torah study or the fulfillment of the mitzvot in the Torah, whether it means 7 or 10 or 613, the numbers don't matter as much as the concept. The concept is that you and I and all of humanity is here for the purpose of facilitating God's vision. That's why we're here. We're not here to have a good time. We're not here to do whatever we want. We're here for a reason. Now, we can choose because of free choice. We can choose to do whatever we want. And God doesn't pull the plug the moment we decide to abrogate the mission. The moment we say to God, thank you very much. You have your reasons for me being here, but I frankly have my own reasons for being here. God doesn't say, well, then you're out. That's not how it works. In fact, I will mention another Medrash that's not here that does say this. It says in the beginning, and we, we may have encountered this in other texts of Kabbalah before, it says that um, God initially, sorry, gives an example. The Medrash says there's an example of a king. I think some of you are going to recognize this. A king that had very fragile glass cups. And he said to himself, if I pour hot water into this cup, into this glass, what's going to happen? It's going to shatter. If I pour cold water into this cup, what's going to happen? The, you, know what, you know when you pour cold, very cold water into a glass cup, there, it gets condensation on the outside? So it's going to look ugly, right? Well, okay, maybe for like a very fine dinner party, then you're going to have to have like the waiters like, like rubbing down the outside of the glass so that it's not like well, the, the guests pick it up, that it shouldn't get their hands wet. Like it's just not, you know, it's not like super classy. Not that beer mugs aren't classy. I'm just saying it's not like maybe like dinner type of uh, situation. So the king says, to, so again, he's, he's like, he's, it's his internal, hmm, he says to himself, if it's too hot, they're going to shatter. If it's too cold, it's going to look ugly. What should I do? Wise man, what does he say? Oh, I'll mix the hot with the cold, right? Get it, room temperature, and then it's going to be fine. The measure says this is a, a parable or an analogy for the way God created the world. Initially, God wanted to create the world with hot water. What does that mean? With strict justice. Gvura. In Kabbalah, we call this gvura, or din. Just judgment. Harsh. Very harsh judgment. But he realized that that's going to shatter the glasses. That's like us, right? It's going to shatter the container, shatter the vessels. It's not, it's not going to work. 
But then he said, so then he said, okay, so then I'll pour cold water. But if it's only cold water, if it's ice cold water, then it's going to get ugly. So he said, you know what? I'll do a little hot with a little cold, then it'll be good. What does that mean? What does that actually mean? So Kabbalah explains that God initially wanted to create the world with strict justice, meaning that the moment anyone falls out of line, they're out. It's like the army. Imagine the army. You tell your command. I've never been in the army, but imagine in the army. I can't, but I've, I've seen enough. Uh, I've, I've, I've seen enough to, uh, to be dangerous. So imagine you tell your commanding officer, you tell the general, thank you very much. You have your opinion on what I should be doing today. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate your vision. I appreciate your... Everyone stand up and start marching. I appreciate that. I really do. I understand where you're coming from. However, I'm going to stay in my barracks and play Wordle all day. You're out. You're, you're out. It's not even a question. You're, you're sent flying. You're court-martialed. I don't know what you, what you are. I'm just making up words at this point. You're done. You're finished. You're finished. Done. No. Oh, what do you mean? You have to understand where they're coming from. No, you're out. You're done. It's an army. This is not, this is not what is this? We're not playing games here. This is an army. This is an army. So God wanted to create the world with gvura. You step out, you're done. You're finished. Delete. Right? Or like... Dishonorable discharge. Dishonorable dis- right, dishonorable discharge. You're done. You're finished. The old e- ejecto seat. It's like, boom, either down or up. Whatever. You're done. You're finished. You're out of the car. You're done. Through the, through the, through the uh, sunroof. You're out. We're on a mission. You, you, you say, I don't want it. Okay, so you're out. You opted out. You opted out. You chose. God realized that it's not sustainable. All the vessels are going to shatter. All the glass are going to shatter. Who, who, there's no one going to be left. If, it's that, if that's the standard, God's going to be very lonely very soon. God will look around and say, huh, where did everybody go? Everybody went. You, everyone got bounced. What do you mean? So then God's like, okay, so then let me go the other way. Again, this didn't actually happen. It's not like God was this. But giving us a way to understand how the world runs. So then the other option is, the other extreme is cold. Which means no, no, um, no standards, no expectations, no reward, no punishment, like nothing, whatever you want. Cold. If heat, if hot water is strict justice, cold water, the other extreme is do whatever you want. Unmitigated chesed, kindness, total enabling, whatever you want, however you feel, you want to show up, show up, you don't want to show up, don't show up. Imagine running an army like that. Whatever you guys want to do, right? You're running an army. And you say to the guys, all right, opening speech. Here's how we're going to run this thing. Whatever you guys want to do. You want to march, sure. You don't want to march. You want to get dressed in the morning. You don't want to get dressed. You want to fight. You don't want to, whatever you guys, you tell me what you want to do. That was the other extreme. It's going to get ugly. It's going to get ugly. It's good. The glasses are going to get all that condensation on the outside, which means, right, it, this world is it's just not going to get to that vision. You're never going to get there. So strict justice, you're not going to get there because no one's going to be left. No just, no expectations at all. You're not going to get there either because everyone's just be running their own show. So God mixes a little bit of this with a little bit of that. There is a little justice. There are expectations. We are held accountable. Maybe not in this immediate moment, but at some point we know it so we can kind of keep us in check. At the same time, we do have free choice. We're not zapped right away. It's kind of that balance. And that's where free choice comes in. 
So, let's get back inside. I said that because of what we were reading inside. Um, Therefore they declare, back to the last paragraph, therefore they declare, for you were created for this purpose. The primary purpose of man's creation is for the Torah. As it is written, ultimately all is known. Fear God and observe His commandments, for this is the whole purpose of man. This is the last verse of Kohelet, Ecclesiastes. Saif davra kol nishma. This is how he sums up. Ecclesiastes is a very complicated book. Very complicated work. It's... It's philosophy, it's, it's, it's almost tortured in, its, uh, in King Solomon's uh, writings about, uh, he starts off talking about of Hevel, Avel, Makol Hevel, talks about how all is vanity, all is nothing, and he says at the end, the bottom line, Saif Dover Hakol Nishma, at the end of the day, here's what we know. Here's what we know. He says, Saif Dover Hakol Nishma, Eselakim Yira, fear God, Ves of Shmar, and keep his commandments, because this is what it's about. And that's how he concludes the book. After all of the unknown of life, the, all the uncertainty of life, all the vanity of life, here's what we do know. That we're here for a reason. So let's just do it. Let's just embrace it. No, we're not going to get pulled out of the line. God didn't create the world with that strict justice to the point that, if we met, that the moment we step out of line, we're yanked. That's not how it works. This has to come from us. It's a choice. But understanding this, understanding what's at stake, allows us to appreciate that we're here for a reason. There's an objective, objective for why we're here. In that case, and this really concludes why we're doing all of this conversation. Last two lines on that page, one, uh, 242. In that case, when man does what he was created for, He's not to be satisfied with himself. What's with the padding on the back? What's with the arrogance? What's with the hubris? In his, 244, in his divine service too. So in other words, when a person studies Torah or does a mitzvah, yes, it's great. Obviously, it's good. But is it beyond expectations? It's the expectations. It's literally what we were created to do. And so too in divine service, that means in prayer, in the prayer experience, that the prayer experience, like that meditational connection, when he attains love and attachment to God, he's also not to be satisfied with himself, for this is his whole reason for his being in this world. How do you say it in French? Raison d'être. D'être. La raison d'être. With a ch? D'être. There's no way I'm ever going to be able to replicate that. All right. I don't know. I, I, I'm like, raison to etre, as we say in the South. Ponce de Leon. Uh, that's like Ponce de Leon. Huh? That's how you say it in America. Made in America. Oh, baby. Right. Nice. Nice. Yeah. The statue. Yeah, the statue. Yeah, the dude who was thinking. All right. So here we go. So the whole reason for his being, his whole raison, la raison d'être. All right, maybe. I, have to, I, have to, I feel like I have to end it with a little bit of uh, confidence. And then, oh, he got it right. Yeah, for sure. Totally got it. Anyway, so that's the whole reason for his being. Man's ultimate purpose. Ultimate doesn't mean like, man's ultimate might sound like too like idealistic. Man's ultimate purpose means his, his literal purpose is that he rise 
elevate through Torah and divine service. That means Torah, mitzvot, and the prayer experience. As we have explained, Discourse 1, chapters 3 and 4, in reference to the purpose of our creation. This is why we're here. Again, this is not anyone telling anyone else. If someone did a mitzvah, oh, yeah, pfft. No, it's about time. This is not about anyone else. This is about internal dialogue to keep us humble. That's it. And, and pull this whole book, Overcoming Folly, is directed to us to give us personal ammunition to help ourselves. This is not for anyone else. It's not judging anyone else. It's not telling anyone, anyone else off. It's not criticizing anyone else. It's a self-narrative. If the narrative in my own head is, wow, look at me, how amazing I am. Uh, I can't look, look at what I've done. No one does it better than me. I can't, whatever the narrative is. If that's the narrative, then just insert. No worries. Then just insert this. Then just, um, then if this, start again. If this is, so my, if my narrative is, look how great I am, look how amazing I am, look at what I've done, then I, and it's really there. And so we have now a, a, a thought that I can insert within my, within my own mind saying to myself, this is literally why I'm here. Let me take it easy and let me take a step down from the, I don't need to expect that I'm going to be put on a pedestal and receive a gold medal because I did a mitzvah. I woke up today and, and did a mitzvah, gold medal. Again, going back to my, so I, I like this example, going back to the soldiers in the army. You woke up on time, you got dressed, and you marched. Again, this is my rudimentary understanding of the army is a lot of marching. Right, so you, 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 got, you, you stood in line, good. Medal, not yet, not yet. Let's, uh, let's see how things play out. We're not going to give you a medal yet, right? Maybe that's where American society is still uh, not, not yet fully in this uh, needing Positive feedback. Nothing wrong with positive feedback. This is really internal. It's not about anybody else. It's really internal. Like, I tell myself, this is what I'm meant to be doing. On the contrary. And now he goes even deeper. And you'll see what he's about to do. This is going to take us to the end of this. We have another two paragraphs and a, and a line. So stay with me here, because this is powerful. On the contrary. His satisfaction with his Torah study and worship, that's prayer, make it quite clear that his service did not effect a state of bittel. State of bittel means a, a state of humility within himself. Listen to this. If a person catches themselves becoming arrogant and self-satisfied, look at me, where's a waiting for my, uh, for the plane, skywriting. You know the skywriting planes? It's a beautiful blue sky outside. I'm looking over midtown Atlanta, right? Imagine the plane says, Rabbi Ari killed it today, right? I mean, like, imagine, like, that's what it should be saying because look at what I've done. Imagine if that's what it's, eh, that's my expectation. Then you know what that means? Not only should I not feel satisfied for doing what I'm supposed to be doing, it means I didn't even do what I was supposed to be doing. You with me in this plot twist? Not only is it, not only is the problem that I meet, met expectations, Right, no need for, for arrogance. The fact that I'm feeling arrogant is a sign that I did not even meet expectations. Because what were the expectations? To be humble. So if I'm not humble, I'm patting myself on the shoulder, I still have a lot of work to do. That's the, that's the plot twist here. It's brilliant. He has in this case, with arrogance or self-satisfaction, not attained the desired fulfillment. Instead of self-satisfaction, he should properly be anguished. 
that he has fallen so short of fulfilling his purpose in life? And if so, why was he created at all? And what has he achieved? No one should ever tell anyone else this. What have you achieved? Why are you even here? You're away. No, 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 no. And don't tell yourself this on a, in general either. That's, this is very, very harsh. But, but, it's like the way it's explained in Tanya. You also have to use some other teachings in other areas to really understand the context here. Like it says in Tanya, a knife is a dangerous item. If you're using a knife, you have to know exactly what you're using it for. Like a, a surgeon, they're not just slicing and dicing. Anyway, a surgeon's just slicing. Come on, right? A surgeon is holding a tool that literally is life and death to the other person, to the patient. And a surgeon has to know that the way they hold the tool, the way they hold the tool is critical. And they're only going to cut what has to be cut and cut out what has to be cut out. And it's very precise. And in this case, when it comes to self-critique, it's like a knife. Only use it if you know what you're doing. Do not do this. Do not, and this is my warning for this paragraph. Do not do this if you're unsure what you're doing. Do not tell yourself, if I'm falling short of my purpose in life, why am I created? What have I achieved? Do not say that to yourself if you're not a surgeon in, 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 a, um, in an emergency room in a sterile environment. Make sure that you know what you're doing. But if you know what you're doing, this is a powerful exercise, a powerful um, self-exercise of, of, of humbling oneself. If you know what you're doing, if you're, if you're doing it right. And what is the exercise? The exercise is, if I, if I catch myself becoming a little arrogant, a little too self-satisfied, a little too smug with myself, then I can tell myself a number of things. Number one, one second, all of my gifts come from God. All of my opportunities come from God. Right? The energy that, that I use to make the choice comes from God. Now, I, I did make a choice, but that choice is only what God expected of me to do. So am I really arrogant? And if I am really arrogant from this, that means that I actually didn't do what I'm supposed to do because I'm supposed to serve God in a humble way. And if I'm arrogant, then that means I'm not really serving God. I'm serving myself. And if so, what, what am I, well, how am I pretending that I'm righteous? It's not even righteous. What's going on over here? So let's continue. This is especially true. If he has not been perf perfectly meticulous, even in trivial matters, it says even trivial matters, even smaller details of Torah mitzvot, for these are considered important for one of his stature, as we explained before in Discourse 15, Chapter 5, the last discourse, the last chapter that we did. In other words, I think we did this two weeks ago. The details do matter. The, the, more, the closer you are, the higher you are, the more what you do matters. A scratch and a diamond is more severe than a scratch on a piece of coal. That's the nature of diamonds and coal. All the more, he says inside, if these trivial matters entailed any profanation of the, of the name, God forbid. In other words, if, if a person of a high spiritual caliber did something that then doesn't look good, then desecrates God's name, that's a big problem. Then it would be better had he never been born. Oh, this is strong, right? Okay, listen, it is what it, this is not for anyone else. This is one own, he, he's quoting now from the Talmud. It doesn't mean literally. He's quoting from the Talmud. It says there was a big debate amongst the, amongst the sages. For years they had this debate, a running debate. Is it better that we were born or better had we never been born? You understand this philosophical conversation? Is it better, to, is it, is it better that we were born or would it have been better had we never been born? You know what the conclusion is? It would be better had we never been born. But now that we're born, right, we got to do what we got to do. 
So he's saying, if we're not doing what we need to be doing, then, uh, all right, then why are we here? That's what he's saying. Had he never engaged in Torah and divine service, it would have been better. For then at least the profanation of the name would have been avoided. In other words, you say, this great Torah scholar acts like, a, acts like an arrogant, uh, that's what Torah gets you. Torah gets you an arrogant guy, an arrogant person. Then now you're, it's not just about this guy being arrogant. It's about Torah not working. It's about God. It's all, you just, all this stuff gets mixed in. It's just not, not a good thing. So now, thank you very much for dragging Torah and God down into the, into the gutter. The cause of all this, so what's the, pro, what's, this, what's the, the root of all this? The cause of all this is that his divine service is not truthful. It's not, it's not honest. It's not, it's, not, it's not authentic. Were it true service, were, if it was really authentic, it would, have been, it would have brought bittel to his soul, which is self-humility. It would, it, would, it would have made him more humble. And he wouldn't be self-satisfied at all. It goes without saying that he would have been careful about every fine detail. But when the spirit of folly, which is, of course, the core of this book. It's all about overcoming folly. But when the spirit of folly persuades him, he is arrogant in his learning or is satisfied with himself. All of this comes from the spirit of folly. The spirit of folly is the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, inside a person that says, ooh, look how much you did. The evil inclination is very, is very tricky. It's very tricky. It says sometimes, it, if it knows it can't stop you from doing the right thing, it then jumps in and says, ooh, look, you did the right thing. Isn't that amazing? And now it makes you feel proud about doing the right thing, which makes it, which, which, which slants it into the negative. All of this, again, very simple. All of this is designed to allow us to combat the inner voice of arrogance or the inner emotion of arrogance or the inner voice that tells us be arrogant. The, the reflexive response can be arrogant. This is why I'm here. I can't take credit for this. God gave me the ability, the opportunity, the ability to choose. This, these are my expectations. And if I am arrogant, then I'm, then I'm actually falling short. I, if I'm feeling good about meeting expectations, well, then I'm not meeting expectations. That's the undoing of my expectation. The expectation is to do it and to be humble. So if I'm feeling arrogant about it, then I'm actually not meeting expectations. So then what am I, being prou what am I proud about? Not meeting expectations. That doesn't make any sense. Should one, how should one feel if one realizes one did not succumb to the evil inclination? You're saying if one is humble and not arrogant, no, then how do we feel? Just hasn't done, you know, oh. You know. No, it's there's it, no pro. It's not. Listen, he's not trying to take away the 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 a joy from life or a pleasure or satisfaction. None of that is evil. The problem is when it crosses the line and gets to a place where it's making us an obnoxious person. Yeah, one should feel proud for anything. You do a mitzvah, you resisted the evil inclination. There's no nothing wrong with, with a little bit of, you know, I, I, I got this. But it, when, it, when, it, when it bleeds over, so to speak, into self-harm, in other words, it, it now takes us away from what we were meant to do because we're so like, proud of what we did that now we're not going to do the next thing. Or when it disrupts our relationships or when it disrupts our relationship with God, that's when we know, hold on, reality check, I got something I need to work on. And it's not something wrong that I did. It's a product. It's not a product of the wrong things that I did. It's a product of the right things that I did. And that makes it a little bit trickier to identify. It's a little harder to identify this because I'll look back, or a person will look back and say, I actually didn't do anything wrong. I did all the right things. So I'm, I'm fine. In fact, I'm great because look at all the stuff that I did. That's actually the problem. 
It's that it's the ultimate blinder on the problem because it's coming from a positive place, which is why he's delving so deeply into it to try to like cut, to try to help us, give us the tools to be able to cut that out of ourselves when we recognize that that's going to be a problem. And this is what really what we continue next week in chapter two, where he talks about he's and really what chapter two is, is masterful. This next chapter because he's going to map out the last. I'm going to say probably two or three months of our classes, he's going to go through all of them, boom, 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 and map them out and show how they're one continuum of descent into, you know, from a good place into a negative place, and then show us how to extricate ourselves, how to pull, up, pull us ourselves out of that. All right, so in the final analysis, because it's always good to end with uh, kind of a summary, but also a call to action and some inspiration for the week. So here's what we know. We know that God, and of course, I'm using like somewhat metaphorical language. God is looking toward each and every one of us. And, and hoping and waiting for us to build his house. God says, I have a vision. God gave us the vision. We have the vision document. We have the blueprint. The Torah says it's the blueprint of the world. We have the blueprint. God says, I want you to build it. I want you to build it. God makes himself very vulnerable to us. Right? God makes himself very vulnerable. God says that my, the keys to my, to my house or the key to building the house is in your hands. We have tremendous responsibility. It's a privilege and, it, and it's a tremendous responsibility. And so the message for us is let us humbly accept this mission and get it done because that's why we're here. Along the way, sure, we can enjoy no, no one's going like, no to have a problem with, uh, with a little bit of fun on the side. But the main thing is to recognize what we're about. As King Solomon writes at the end, the final verse of Kohelet Ecclesiastes, right? We have to know why we're here. Saifdavra Konishma. At the end of the day, here's what we know. Asalakim Yura, fear Hashem, fast of Shmar, and keep his mitzvahs, kizak adam, because this is what it's all about. All right, so let's have a week. Pleasure. Let's have, a, let's, let's have an inspiring week. True to mission. And if we catch ourselves being a little too arrogant, we now have hopefully some healthy tools, inner cognitive tools, to be able to walk ourselves off of that arrogant ledge, arrogance ledge, and walk back. I will tell you, even in, I don't know why I say even, even in sports, athletics, Arrogance can lead to many negative things. Think about, you know, teammates, right? Think about, you know, you want to be a teammate. If it's all about you, yeah, we know what that leads to, right? That leads to, like, how come I wasn't throwing the, the ball? How come I'm not getting enough passes? That leads to self-destructive, destroys the team. And I'm not, I'm not trying to, like, it's not about anyone in specific. I'm just saying, like, we know what arrogance can do, but, and it's born of being very good. Maybe the best player in the world. But you know what? If you let it get to your head, and that creates expectations and demands and everything, then it, just, it's, it's, it, it serves as a person's own undoing. The greatest is to be the greatest and to be humble, to not have that level of expectation. All right. Hope that makes sense. All right, have a good week, Shavuot Tov. A few announcements. What's going on this week? Um, this week we have, what do we have? No book club, no RCS. 
We have JLI Tuesday night and Thursday. Um, meditation from Sinai. We have Torah studies Wednesday. Next week we have a few events happening. I believe. 36. No. Do we? 36. That's next Thursday? A week from Thursday. Yeah. All right. Check the website. It's on there. It's on, it's on the website. More stuff is going up also very soon. Okay. We'll see you, everybody. Have a wonderful week. Shavuot Tov. Take care. Did you find some tickets? Yes. Yes? There were a lot of tickets. Yeah, they went. They weren't cheap, but Mika said it was the best time. We had a blast. Apparently, my friend told me that he just found that ticket. Hey.